You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, listeners. Annie here for the third in 3CR Solidarity Breakfast summer season of programs. First, we're going down to Appleton Docks, Footscray, just before Christmas, where unions for Palestine were gathered to set up a picket to stop the arrival of a Zim ship, the Sparrow. Zim Shipping is an ardent supporter of the Israeli Zionist project, lending ongoing support to their assault on Gaza. We will hear from Jem Walsh from the Loud Jew Collective and others at the event. Brendan Cooney, Program Manager for Midsummer, spoke to me about the unbelievable and exciting program of events this Midsummer Festival, starting on Sunday, January the 21st, and going to Sunday the 11th of February. Over the next two weeks, we're going to talk public housing. This week, we hear from Mr Nathan Del Bon. He's the Chief Executive Officer of Housing Australia mainly to find out how the neoliberalism framework believes it is going to solve the manufactured housing crisis by boosting private investment. Then we have a chat with two long-term Victorian public housing tenants who have been activists and supporters of our lovely public housing for a number of years, Lynn and John. 3CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast Summer Season. We have an action-packed show for you this morning, but before we kick off, some news items I thought you might be interested in. First up, sad news. John Pilger, that indefatigable journalist who fought the good fight effectively and throughout his life, who brought truth to power, died on the 30th of December. The news was announced by family on John's Facebook page. It is with great sadness the family of John Pilger announced he died yesterday, 30th of December 2023, in London, aged 84. His journalism and documentaries were celebrated around the world, but to his family, he was simply the most amazing and loved dad, granddad and partner. Rest in peace, the post read. Secondly, 
despite the fossil fuel corporations and the big money that supports and misshapes our governments, a piece of news that shows that fight continues to lay punches was the forced resignation of the Northern Territory Chief Minister, Natasha Files. A targeted campaign exposed Files' lack of transparency as Chief Minister. Get up and talk black report that Files was forced to ditch her shares in gas giant Woodside, a major supporter of the Middle Arm Gas Hub. Files was re referred to the Northern Territory Corruption Commission over revelations. Her senior advisor owns a lobbying company that represents Timber and Fracking Corporation and that Files gave the green light for large-scale fracking the Northern Territory, misrepresenting the conditions that all recommendations to protect water and listen to traditional owners had been met. Get up and talk black, say that the traditional owners and community members across the Territory leading the campaign to hold files accountable now expect the new Northern Territory Chief Minister to listen to the deep concerns of traditional owners by protecting water and stop the fracking in Beetaloo Basin. On the same theme... The Environmental Defender's Office reported on Greenpeace's federal court challenge launched against Woodside over alleged greenwashing on December the 14th. Greenpeace alleged that the fossil fuel giant has been misleading and deceiving Australians about the enormous climate harm of its gas and oil projects. Woodside claims that it cut down on emissions produced from extracting and processing its gas and oil by 11% in 2022. Greenpeace argues that in reality, Woodside relied heavily on carbon offsets and its actual emissions went up by more than 3%. Woodside also publicly claimed to have a plan to achieve net zero by 2050, yet it fails to mention its targets doesn't apply to scope three emissions, which make up over 90% of Woodside's carbon pollution. Not only that, but instead of cutting down on its pollution, Woodside is actively ramping up its fossil fuel production with new gas projects like the Birup Hub in Western Australia, the most polluting fossil fuel project currently proposed in Australia. Net zero is entirely incompatible with continued investment in fossil fuels and Greenpeace says Woodside must be held to account for these allegedly deceptive and misleading claims. Well, we'll see what happens, eh? The use of the law to get positive results is a slow process when so much is at stake. News from the Melbourne Activist Legal Court emails those important legal observers you see at demonstrations wearing pink vests give some legal highlights. First up, the Knitting Nanners, specifically Helen Keld and Dominic Jacobs, took legal action to defend the right to protest in October 2022 after the New South Wales government passed new laws following a series of climate-related demonstrations. On behalf of Helen and Dom, the Environmental Defender's Office launched a constitutional challenge to Section 21.4a of the Crimes Act 1900 that criminalised certain conduct such as remaining near any part of a major facility such as Martin Place Station, if that conduct 
causes persons attempting to use the major facility to be redirected on the basis it impermissibly burdens the implied freedom of political communication. The Nanners also asked the court to find the amendments to the Roads Regulation 2018 that altered the definition of major bridge, tunnel or road under Section 144G of the Roads Act 1993 beyond regulation-making power and therefore invalid. On December the 13th, the Supreme Court upheld parts of the constitutional challenge, declaring parts of 21... 4A of the Crimes Act are invalid because they infringed on the improved freedom of political communication. However, the court found the amendment to the Roads Regulation 2018 valid. Helen said, we are happy the court has given some acknowledgement to the democratic right to protest, but these laws to me feel like a distraction, as if both Labor and the Liberal Party are trying to get the population angry with the protesters instead of angry against politicians for failing to protect us from climate emergency. And on the same theme, yet again, it should be added that the New South Wales Police arrested five legal observers at the rising tide protest in Newcastle on the 27th of November 2023. Legal observers, New South Wales, New South Wales Council of Civil Liberties and Human Rights Law Centre have demanded that all charges against the observers be dropped and that New South Wales police respect the role of legal observers and their right to observe and monitor protests and other actions under the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights to which Australia is a party. The role of journalists, human rights defenders, election monitors and others involved in monitoring or reporting on assemblies is of particular importance for the full enjoyment of the right of peaceful assembly. Those persons are entitled to protection under the covenant. They may not be prohibited from or unduly limited in exercising their functions, including with respect to monitoring the actions of law enforcement officials. They must not face reprisals or other harassments, and their equipment must not be confiscated or damaged, even if an assembly is declared unlawful or is dispersed. That does not terminate the right to monitor. It is a good practice for independent national human rights institutions and non-governmental organisations to monitor assemblies. Our favourite Texas singing cowboy, Charlie Crockett, returns to Melbourne this February for a huge night at the Forum. Charlie and his band, The Blue Drifters, will deliver another scorching night of timeless country classics and Wild West tales on February the 12th with country soul queen, Emma Donovan. Charlie Crockett and Emma Donovan at the Forum in February. Good times. Tickets on sale now. Love Police is a 3CR supporter. And even subtropical rainforests that don't usually burn, we're actually on fire. We have the obligation to care for country. So much forest burnt that around 3 billion animals are either killed or displaced. The more we push back against the colonial apparatus, the more positive change we can have in terms of addressing climate change. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. 
We're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast Summer Season. We turn to the horror that is Palestine. By the 28th of December, more than 21,300 people were reported killed in the Israeli assault on Gaza and over 55,600 injured, with roughly 7,000 more missing, likely buried under rubble. The United Nations reported that 85% of the population of the enclave has been displaced and 40% face famine. UN shelters are at over four times capacity. On December the 29th, South Africa filed an application instituting proceedings against Israel before the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, concerning alleged violations by Israel of its obligations under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. The ICJ is the principal judicial organ of the United Nations. The International Criminal Court, the ICC, is already investigating possible war crimes and crimes against humanity committed by both Hamas and Israel. The response from the Israeli foreign minister to South Africa's move to out it as perpetrating a genocide is interesting, only that it gives some insight into the sense of Israeli entitlement, victimhood and arrogance in the face of civilian carnage. South Africa's claims lacks both a factual and a legal basis and constitutes despicable and contemptuous exploitation of the court. South Africa is cooperating with a terrorist organisation that is calling for the destruction of the State of Israel. The statement added that the Hamas terrorist organisation, which is committing war crimes, crimes against humanity, and tried to commit genocide in October the 7th, is responsible for the suffering of the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip by using them as human shields and stealing humanitarian aid from them. Israel is committed to international law and acts in accordance with it and directs its military efforts only against the Hamas terrorist organisation and the other terrorist organisations cooperating with Hamas. Israel has made it clear that the residents of the Gaza Strip are not the enemy and is making every effort to limit harm to the non-involved and to allow humanitarian aid to enter the Gaza Strip. Israel called on the ICJ and the international community to re reject the claims. It's very difficult to take this seriously considering the level of deaths that are being perpetrated on the Palestinian civilian population. This sense of Israeli hysteria is mirrored by Defence Minister, Minister Galant, who declared... We are in a multi-front war. We are being attacked from seven fronts. Gaza, Lebanon, Syria, Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, Iraq, Yemen and Iraq. Down on the docks in Melbourne, just before Christmas, a rally organised by Unions for Palestine to stop the docking of the Zim ship Sparrow, a company which publicly and practically supports the Israeli Zionist project, we hear some voices that say loud and clear that standing with Palestine is an issue of humanity and genocide is not acceptable. We first hear from Green Senator Janet Rice and finish with a word from Jem Walsh from the loud 
Jew collective. Uh, I'm from 3CR. 3CR. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me, you're going to speak today? I am, yeah. To standing up for Palestinians because and for justice and for peace and for you know, human rights that matter for everyone. You know, yeah. they should be universal. And yet we just see the genocide that's going on in Gaza at the moment and the world standing by and watching it. You know, at least you know, Labor have finally come round to supporting uh, the international calls for a ceasefire, but it's not enough, and they need to do much more before they can be applauded for that. So, you know, this I'm here tonight to support every action that we could be possibly taking. I think it's fantastic that the unionists are taking this action, fantastic that students are taking action, that, you know, university graduations, fantastic that people are continuing to email their members of parliament, and, you know, We've just got to keep the pressure up. It's interesting that uh, the shipping line sim still uh, seems to be floating around the world doing it business as usual. Exactly. And it's exactly the sort of thing that when you see things happening at like the State of Israel and their absolute committing of war crimes and the humanitarian catastrophe and the 20,000 or so people that have been killed in Gaza, 70% of whom are women, children and the elderly, you would think that the Western world could actually say there's something going on here and we've got to call it out. But they're happy largely to just be silent and complicit and so it's up to us as the community to keep speaking up because our governments are not reflecting what people want to see which is justice which is peace which you know um, for Palestinians and for Israelis and every day that this war goes on is a day that we are further away from peace. The um, use of war as a method of uh, creating business seems to be something that's in the DNA of uh, corporate business. It's appalling and it's just, you know, you see the defence industries and you see the billions and billions of dollars that are put into creating death and destruction. It is, it's immoral and, and it is, I mean, there are some very wealthy, very powerful forces that are behind it and we've got to call it out. And I think, you know, in some ways, What's been going on in Gaza over the last two months has awakened a lot of people as to how much our government is complicit and how much so much of just what goes on under the surface is erupting up when we just realise, you know, what is what the reality is and what the you know industrial military complex and the power of US imperialism um, really is in the world and how it is just so unjust and so racist. Well the thing about what's going on in Africa right at this moment at the same time in Yemen these same sort of death struggles um, they all seem to be about resources. Exactly. They want the land, they don't want the people. Exactly, and if you look at you know, Israel's you know, claim on Palestine, which you know, is, it's all cloaked in you know, Jewish Zionism, but fundamentally it's about resources, it's about land, it's about water. And they want to rid the land of you know, pesky Palestinians who don't agree with them, and they want to have control. Well, do you think that uh, actually what's at stake, I know what's at stake for the Palestinians is, is big, but it's actually what's at stake for the entire world. It's about law and order. Yes, exactly. And it's actually saying that we really do genuinely believe in the you know, so-called international rules-based order and what us being silent and complicit and what the US supporting Israel and even in the 
depths of the war, you know, approving billions of dollars of weapon sales to Israel, is basically saying we don't have universal human rights. The international rules-based order does not exist. It only exists for people that we agree with. And if that's the reality, well, then that's disastrous for, you know, what we've been trying to create, you know, post-World War II. At least some of us think we've been trying to create it, but clearly there are some really powerful forces that, that don't support that and don't believe in it. The, the use of um, weaponising of um, refugees is an interesting factor, isn't it? Because actually creating these wars is creating refugees and then local uh, populations, especially in Europe at the moment and in America, are being uh, are seen are seeing themselves as being inundated by uh, forces that they can't control. In fact, they can control them Absolutely. if they have no wars. Absolutely. If we actually had fairness and justice and people being able to have self-determination and in their own countries and, you know, and efforts to remove despotic dictators and, well, then, uh, yes, we wouldn't have the issues of people needing to flee their countries and then being seen as a problem in, in other countries around the world. Yeah, nice this is Ihab. So Ihab is uh, nice to meet you, Annie. the, yeah. the founder of the Setifada that sits at the steps. Okay, yeah. do you want to tell me about why you've done this? The Setifada? Yeah, when I arrived in uh, Australia after a trip overseas, it was the war already started 10 days ago. And it was uh, very difficult to comprehend the amount of killing and, 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 and the world around it tried to fight a very small number of people, very brave people. And I could not understand at all how we could just manage our life normal, like pretend nothing happening. It was my decision, I have to do something to respect myself, first of all. I said I have to stop the day-to-day -day life, I have to find something to be able to support uh, the people in Palestine, people of Gaza, and I respect myself for this action. I decided to choose the parliament as a parliament. It's, it's the place of, of politics in the state, uh, and I have to put my stand down there to uh, tell the whole people working in the parliaments, the parliamentarians, we're not happy with their actions, plus engage with the public coming in the streets, and bare minimum, if I don't pass my message, at least I maintain my sanity into it. And uh, this is grown up beyond what I thought, because the general public is so good for people, and it's nearly everywhere worldwide now, knowing about us, supporting us, working with us. We do a lot of activities around the cities. We do a lot of support around the cities. And uh, the last action we done for Zara, it was more than 20 million uh, supporters worldwide and more for it. I think it's worthwhile to respect ourselves and maintain what we're doing and uh, collect everybody around us to be one, one arm, one hand, side by side together to stop this oppression happening worldwide. It's interesting, the thing with Sarah, uh, they think that they're uh, immune to their actions by business. Every business thinks they're immune, but we need to understand one little things. Every business made from the dollar come out of my bucket and your bucket. If we understand this method, there's no business immune whatsoever. We can stop any business and we can direct any business if we boycott the business, if we decide to respect ourselves. We can live without a lot of extra values we don't need. It's very simple. Respect yourself, find out where is your dollar going to go. If going in a humane way, continue. If not, it doesn't have to be Zara, it doesn't have to be Gaza. It can be a factory somewhere in Bangladesh being abused. You don't have to do it. You're not going to live without it, definitely. For the out of respect, there's no immune business anywhere in the world.
we after them one by one. The next one will be Mercedes. We're not going to stop. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice to talk to you. I don't know if you want to speak to me, but I was quite interested in those first uh, rallies. The, um, the way the police were, uh, not that they were aggressive, but that the critical response team, there was like four or five um, tra uh, vehicles as if, you know, they were expecting um, violence or something like that. It was quite provocative, I thought. Yeah, police will often use what they call the theatre of policing, to sh a show of force and have their resources in display to, to intimidate people, basically, and to let people know that they can respond. So it's, it's, um, it's part of their, their tactics to do that. Sometimes, conversely, they keep their resources behind the scenes if they don't want to escalate things. So we've seen both approaches over the, over the years. Yeah, yeah. The, I was just wondering if the, uh, the Palestinian the Palestinian rallies were being behave they were behaving differently. Um, with the Palestinian rallies, there's very much a coordinated Victoria Police response. It's been coordinated through an Operation Park. It's a, a command-driven um, uh, project where they have detectives and uh, prosecutors and senior police strategizing around how they will respond to the pro-Palestinian protest movement. And so that involves a whole range of different policing areas and um, including, you know, criminal investigation unit and so forth and the laying of charges and the deployment of all their resources. So it's obviously a very big, growing and diverse you know, protest movement, the, the, what we've seen over the last nine or ten weeks. Um, and so police are, you know, at one level police are coordinating their response across that diversity, but we're also seeing that sort of strategic thinking of how they can use charges and use certain legal mechanisms to control the protests, and that's what we're mainly worried about. Um, the sticking, yeah. they were picking on people, sticking uh, stickers on things and stuff. Yeah, well that was in response to the week before where um, you know, various establishments got targeted by protesters, so they they felt compelled to to target it the next week. So yeah, that's that's not out of the ordinary. Uh, it's more the strategic incapacitation tactics that we're most worried about, where police use a variety of charges and methods to uh, undermine the ability of an of a movement to organise or to to protest. And so that's what we're mainly looking for and worried about, and that that contravenes and undermines. The, you know, our charter rights in Victoria and the international conference of civil and political rights and other rights to protest. So, yeah, that's our main concern is whether there's strategic, strategically, just, you know, disruption or incapacitation. And we haven't seen too much of that so far, but um, but we're certainly monitoring it really closely. Thanks. Hello, I'm Jem. I'm a member of the Loud Jew Collective. <laughs> Today we meet on the lands of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded over these lands, these waterways, these skies and these ecosystems. I stand here as a coloniser in acknowledgement that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. I also acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded over the lands, the waterways, the skies and the ecosystems between the Jordan River 
and the Mediterranean Sea. That country always was and always will be Palestinian land. I'm here today as a nurse, uh, as a queer and trans person, and as a Jew. <laughs> as a nurse, I denounce Israel's deliberate targeting of hospitals and health infrastructure and healthcare workers. As a queer person, I reject with disgust the images of Israeli soldiers holding up queer flags in front of their monstrous tanks, claiming some kind of safety or liberation for queer Palestinians. As if anybody is ever safer when their homes are being bombed, when their families are being murdered, and when their cultural heritage is being decimated. And as a Jew, I can barely find the words. The systematic brutality and the psychopathic cruelty that's being wrought upon Palestine and Palestinian people in the name of Judaism takes my voice away and threatens to take God from my spirit. But when the words come, they are a roar. Now is the time. Now is the time to destroy the Zionist project. <laughs> Growing up Jewish, I was surrounded by the message that to be Jewish is to support Israel. I was taught that Judaism and Zionism are inextricably linked. They're two parts of my birthright, two sides of the same coin. In every synagogue I ever walked into, I was fed this lie, Judaism is based on Zionism. What a warped and dangerous lie to tell a child. What a carefully calculated, deeply violent falsehood to build the post-war international community on. Zionism has capitalized on the Holocaust and falsely claims Jewish indigeneity to justify racist land theft. Yeah. Zionism is not Judaism. Zionism is a settler colonial project that aims to establish a Jewish majority ethno state on the lands of historic Palestine. Of this objective, Zionism has engaged with an excessively resourced propaganda campaign, excessively resourced ideological warfare to create a mirage of legitimacy. And this propaganda has been so effective that over the course of 75 years, Zionism has become synonymous with Judaism. Not only that, it's become synonymous with the survival of the Jewish people. It's a fallacy, it's a falsehood. I reject it and so do so many Jews. This is a mask that seeks to obscure the fascist, malevolent, hyper-capitalist, racist monstrosity that is the real face of the Israeli state. 
the political actions that we've been seeing and participating in in the recent months have been removing this mask, layer by layer highlighting the links between global capitalism, trade routes, weapons supply chains, prisons and genocide. We see clearly what lies beneath the only democracy in the Middle East, a lie. And now is the time to shine the spotlight on this lie. 75 years, Israel has been waging war on Palestinian lives, Palestinian land and Palestinian culture. For 75 years, Palestinian poets and activists, people, parents, filmmakers, journalists have been calling for the end of the Zionist project, an end to the horrific experience of living in a prison, within a prison, within a prison. On October 7th, a group of Palestinian freedom fighters, many of them extremely young, breached the walls of the prison to demand that we recognise their liberation movement. I will not condemn those resistance fighters. I will not pass judgment on their tactics. And I quote the black American abolitionist Angela Davis, who notes that placing the question of violence at the forefront of the discourse is a tactic used to obscure the issues at the center of struggles for justice. The issue at the centre is the restoration of rights to life, to land, and to freedom for a sovereign people. And if we understand that none of us are free until all of us are free, we see that the destruction of the Zionist project is an imperative step on the path to collective liberation for all of us, every single one of us. The links between the genocide in Palestine and Aboriginal deaths in custody, refugee detention, capitalist-fueled climate chaos, they're tangible, they're material. Incarceration of Palestinian civilians is such a routinized part of daily life that about 20% of the population has experienced some form of detention or incarceration. We know that children are being caged there and they're being caged here too. We know this by way of the Aboriginal activists who have been resisting the juvenile detention and traumatisation and removal of their kids since the invasion of Australia. If we refuse to accept it here, and we refuse to accept it there, if we collaborate to resist incarceration everywhere, we weaken the whole foundation of the prison industrial system. We weaken the foundations of colonization. And we weaken Zionism and the Western war machine that it is a part of. So now's the time to do that. And I'm so grateful that you invited me to speak here today. And it's so amazing to see so many people actively doing that. May we act in solidarity as union members Teachers, Christians, queers, Jews, healthcare workers, Muslims, parents. May we act with guidance from Palestinian voices and with guidance from Aboriginal voices, with guidance from the voices of people fighting to end colonisation. Thank you.
You're with Annie on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, listening to third in our summer season. We've been listening to Jem Walsh from the Loud Jew Collective at a pro-Palestinian rally just before Christmas. Before we leave the issue of Palestine, Breaking Views reports on December the 27th, Intel is quickly becoming a proxy for President Joe Biden's America, Inc. The $213 billion semiconductor manufacturer said that it would accept a $3.2 billion grant from Israel's government to build a new $25 billion chip plant that plus similar outlays from US and German coffers create a loop that will become a unique boon for shareholders. President Biden wants to build an allied semiconductor supply chain to fend off China. He must use Intel to do so. The new Israeli factory will be built at an existing site 26 miles from Hamas-controlled Gaza. Along with the investment from the government, Intel will receive a reduced tax rate. The company says this is part of an effort to foster a more resilient supply chain, according to Reuters. With the US government trying to shut China out from allied nations, chip-making prowess, and Beijing in response, racing to develop its own strengthening that supply chain is of crucial importance. There's more to this for Intel than simply the cash and tax perks. Though shares have nearly doubled in a year, revenue has been declining dramatically. The company suffered from a giant pullback in personal computer purchases after a pandemic-fueled boom. To offset weaker consumer markets, it now has the implicit backing of the US government and, it seems, some allies. That likely means that they will use Intel to make chips to service their own defence needs. Indeed, in November, the Wall Street Journal reported that Intel was in the lead to receive funding to build a secure facility to produce microchips for military and intelligence operations. And it puts Intel at the nexus of Biden's industrial strategy to fortify America's in technological defences. Other manufacturers like RTX and General Dynamics have long been considered surrogates for America's missions. The chips business needs a champion too, and Intel is here for the job. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You might have heard about the Community Radio Plus app, but it's only when you start using it that you'll wonder how you lived without it. You can listen to us wherever you are 
At home, work, driving, on public transport, gardening, protesting, or even in the bath. Just search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your app. You're with Annie on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, listening to the third in our summer season. Midsummer, the premier queer cultural extravaganza, begins in Melbourne Sunday the 21st of January and runs to the 11th of February. Speaking to Brendan Cooney, Program Manager for Midsummer, I was bowled over by the diversity implicit in this year's offering. Oh, it's fascinating to see how uh, long... Uh, Midsummer's been going. I've lost count. It's like the 37 or 38 years. I think it's 37 years. Yes, it's been going a hell of a long time, Annie. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's great. And also, it's developed into something really big. I, I think that's, um, that's absolutely true. Very much um, my CEO was brought on around eight years ago by the board to very much give it a focus of an, of an arts festival. And I think what that's done is created, which was the intention to create this ecology of support and interaction and bringing venues and public and artists together. And I think what we found, and certainly found it last year with a program that had more than 200 events, this year we've got about 250. But what it's shown is a huge appetite for queer, queer shows telling queer stories. Um, and it, it's right across the breadth and depth of all sorts of genres. But, but theatre is the one that's really popping up its head in terms of people really wanting to tell stories and audiences really wanting to hear them. Well, tell me about the brave space development, because that's really important. Like you said, creating an ecology and Midsummer actually uh, putting resources into uh, diverse artists' um, voices. Listen, we love to support all shows that are out there, but some producers and some artists are already doing great work. What the board and uh, the staff have identified is there are some key areas within our communities that I guess the voices weren't being heard. They're from our people of colour, they're from our uh, disabled cultures, they're from um, our First Nations cultures. So right across the board, we do we do a lot of work to try and highlight those stories. And certainly Victoria's pride in the area that they use over there on uh, go to Smith Street has a has a really robust engagement with um, First Nations communities in the lead up to and the organisation of, of that event. Well, there's a few things we're trying to support everyone. I guess in the, in, in our cultures at the moment, there's a lot of backlash from certain parts of the community. So we try and flesh out stories that really support that. We work with um, we work with the group Fauna uh, from uh, B Projects who um, are developing First Nations work and people of colour's work. Um, we've commissioned civil works with that. Um, Victoria's Pride and Beck Cohen, who's the producer of, of that event, works year-round to support different shows where we want to have those stories told. And the wonderful lion, James Crubbers, who's um, a person of colour who's within our community that's about to head over to Europe, actually, in about six months, um, bringing out new material. So we work with them. We brought them into our launch to really start exposing their art form and their practice. Um, had another, another lovely um, uh, artist called Jackie, who's a Cambodian Australian artist, who's also putting out new material, who we had sing at our launch, will also appear, uh, those two, at, at Carnival and most likely at Victoria's Pride, although their full program's not announced yet. But it is really trying to identify those, those groups uh, and trying to build capacity, I guess. So 
we can't achieve all those things in one year, but what we try and do with the resource we have is continue to work in support groups in light of trying to get them really firm footing so that they have the ability to grow both their, their own um, performance groups, but to reach out and engage and work with others uh, and other venues across across uh, Melbourne. Yeah, so what you're saying is that um, uh, Midsummer has actually gone out to find people and commission work. This is really big. We go, we go out to, and we've done that. Um, we've done it for the last numbers of years. We, we do that. We also go out and try and work with people that we know are doing great work in that. And it's not just our First Nations and people of colour, it's our intergenerational work, people like Catherine Barrett, who did a suite of films last year called Turbulence, uh, was really looking at the relationships between younger and elders in our community. They have continued that work this year and brought out a beautiful piece called Generation K, which again, which is a response between uh, elders and youth and working on projects that can create kindness between those groups Form greater understanding and move forward in the future with that. Um, those 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 works for me are, are, are really special and really important. Giving that support to to groups in our communities um, is really wonderful work that we can do. And there's wonderful people in the community that are already doing that work, and we try and support them where we can in that aim. Yeah, righto. And uh, the other thing is that you mentioned that there's a lots of different venues. Tell me about that. Lots of different venues. We, we're different to other festivals in that regard. We don't have our own hub as such. We don't have our own venue, but we work with other venues and we have a, or we have eight hubs this year from Theatre Works, the Victorian Pride Centre, Gasworks, Abbotsford Convent, the Butterfly Club in the city and the Motley Bauhaus on the north side. Midsummer West Side is a congregation of a few venues over on our west side there in Chapel of Chapel. Basically what the hubs ask for us is it's, if you could go to that venue at any stage across midsummer, we would say that you would you will fall across queer programming. So those venues generally across that period of 21 Jan to the 11th of February have a huge amount of programming that allows people to really drop into those centres and be rest assured they're going to get a variety of queer programming from theatre to spoken word to cabaret to musical performances. Oh, well, that's great. They're really great uh, venues and it really means that people from all across Melbourne can actually go to some events without it being really difficult. Absolutely. And, you know, more than half of our events are free. In addition to the hubs that do that much programming, we also work really closely with some of Melbourne's really large institutions. So uh, Melbourne Museum does a gig with us called Nocturnal, which is a uh, uh, coming into the museum at night time, which is wonderful. And they had one of their best nocturnals last year during midsummer. The Immigration Museum do a wonderful under-18 event, uh, which is called Night at the Museum. Um, uh, NGV do a, a suite of talks and tours through that venue. The library do a series of things for families. So not only do we have our specialised sort of hubs that have a lot of queer programming, but we have our you know, major institutions that for a few years now have been on board every midsummer to make sure that they've got some form of programming in there during our festival as well. But it's not just those dates, I guess. We have another huge project happening in the West this year, which is called Queer Photo. So we joined a collaboration with Trocadero Art Projects and, um, and Photo Orb that do big um, public art uh, photographic works in, in big light boxes all across the city. But so this year, this project will take place in the West, so at it, uh, at the substation of Footscray Community Arts and we're at the Entrocadero, 
where we have 17 artists and 14 exhibitions across seven locations. So they're just the artists and the artwork. And on top of that, there's um, the wonderful Delcy Maleta has developed a series of around 30 public engagement activities that are anything from talks and tours, practical workshops on photography, get your dog photographed as well as little bus tours around some of those regions. So this year, more than ever, um, it's such a big visual arts offering for Midsummer. We have a Midsummer in Australia Post Art Award at No Vacancy that happens every year. That's starting to get a lot of national uh, attention because it's the big queer arts, visual arts uh, prize. Um, which is always with us, but uh, Queer Photo on top of that this year is such a massive project for visual artists this year, which we're really proud of as well. Wow, you guys have been working hard. Um, the uh, other thing is you've got major uh, key events, uh, Midsummer Carnival. We do. Yeah, tell us about the carnival. Well, Midsummer Carnival kicks off. That's 21st of January, so that's our first Sunday Huge day down at Alexandria Park, Alexandria Gardens, down on the just on the south side there of the Yarra. Uh, we take over the entire space to get something like 120,000 people through the day to come to see that. We have a wonderful big stalls precinct, which has all our queer uh, queer organisations from Melbourne that are set up down there, and they provide information across the day as well as a bit of a touchstone. Come to meet some people in different organisations. We have a big sports precinct down there where our all of our sports uh, people get involved down there and do some demonstrations, food stalls, bars, etc. And we have two big stages. One is a big main, well, they're both big main stages. One's a little bit more intimate, our picnic stage, which do the regulars like dog show, which is probably the highlight of the day. <laughs> an hour and a half. And in good weather last year, we had about 55 dogs all packed back a house in the green room waiting to go on stage. But it's such a sweet little event. Uh, that's, that's historically been there for many, many, many years. And we run a lip sync limelight, which is also um, just as just as fun, hosted by the wonderful Dina Curry, uh, Frock Hudson, uh, where people have the chance to get up and do a wonderful lip sync up there. That was uh, <laughs> that, that, that was fabulous last year. And we have a we have a, a nighttime program that's really about dancing and and enjoying yourself at that time. During the day, what we do is we we offer our all of our events are doing our open access program, which are about 160, 170 events. We offer them slots during the day. So it, it might not be your international stars, but what it is, a little bit of a snippet of some of the shows that take place across midsummer. So it's a chance for people to kind of explore the program a little bit through the day and engage with different artists on stage. And then into nighttime, come six o'clock, it's time to dance, it's time to party. And that kicks off uh, the three weeks of the festival for us. In the second or the third weekend, we have Pride March, uh, which happens down Fitzroy Street. Um, we've got more entrants than ever this year uh, and tens of thousands of people that march down Fitzroy Street to show their pride as being part of this wonderful community. And that event keeps growing every year. Ends up in Katani Gardens down the end, right on the beach there. Uh, and we have an afternoon uh, up until 1 to about 5 o'clock, 4.30, an afternoon of staged entertainment. So again, we'll have some, some wonderful MCs, DJs, and a few acts down there to keep you entertained in the afternoon. And then also the last couple of years, we had this wonderful bookend at the end of our festival, which started two years ago called Victoria's Pride, which was the, the 40th year of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Victoria. And thanks to the Victorian government, they continue to fund that event. It takes over Smith Street, Smith Street and Gertrude Street in um, uh, over in Collingwood and 
uh, is a day, a beautiful feeling kind of community, old school kind of community event where, you know, it's all about the people, the colour of the movement. But again, it's a chance for people to come out, celebrate Pride, uh, check out two two fabulous um, stages down there that have entertainment right throughout the day. So we've got a wonderful, wonderful suite of events in there. They're our major events. And we've, we've started building a, a beautiful event uh, just the day before Pride. Uh, we work with wonderful Fed Square, uh, provide us with a venue for the day and a hell of a lot of support for our artists. And we've got a wonderful day in there that has a, cu- a couple of conversations, a couple of panels. One is to talk about the radical acts of joy and gathering, which is really come and join our queer disabled artists as they sort of unpack their community and their connection and the wonderful stories and events that they're producing in our festival this year. And then we have a, a Luzarina Aranda, who's the, the president of the International Lesbian and Gay Association, who are hoping to do their 26th international conference in 2026. So they're heading over here this year to do a bit of work on that and also to have a panel to talk about the effect and how we strengthen voices and practice and collaboration of LGBTQIA artists in the great global south. Um, that'll be punctuated by a, an amazing event in the middle by Homophonic. It's, a, it's called Homophonic Respect. And again, it's another intergenerational work that was done where they interviewed and spoke to elders and community and classical compositions were written for those and to speak for those connections and conversations. Um, remember meeting with Miranda when I started uh, two and a half years ago and they're very much looking for a home for that. And due to the good graces of Fed Square, we've been able to find a home for that and that'll perform during and in between the two uh, great panels that will happen there. And in, in, in addition to that, some wonderful um, wonderful activities and activations that people can enjoy in the atrium on that day. And that's on the, that's on the 3rd of February, the day before Pride March. So it's a jam-packed festival of 250 events. I couldn't even tell you what half of them are about. Midsummer.org.au have all that detail on. We went on sale last Tuesday and... Um, it's worth saying, I guess, at this stage, and certainly within that first 24 hours, we'd sold uh, two and a half times the number of tickets we did last year. So that's great news, um, not just for our audiences, but certainly for our producers and artists that are lining up to join this festival year after year. It's really hit its stride. I think we've hit a really lovely sweet spot where audiences are getting super excited for the festival now, and they're really talking about their feet, buying tickets going to see a multiple of uh, a multitude of shows over the states it's amazing actually it's uh it's like uh moomba comedy festival and the defunct spoleto all at once that's a beautiful way to put it i love that yeah we have several views isn't it we have street parades we have activations on the street we have dead big parties on the street down in the parks as well as you know Really interesting and, and really, you know, quite quite serious theatre theater works. And a whole bunch of stuff that um, Midsummer's been championing over the years where we've supported different um, different events like the Queer Playwriting Awards that happens at Gasworks. That's an opportunity for people to put their scripts in. Uh, there are 30, 40 scripts this year, which we read. Wow. Down with a short list. It's, it's crazy that really the amount of work that's been generated really blows me away. I've worked in festivals for 20 years and uh, most major festivals. And the amount of storytelling and interest that's coming out of our communities is breathtaking. So we really want to support that. We really want to support our storytellers. We have people like Katan Petrovsky, who did the Gospel According to Jesus at um, 45 Downstairs last year. Sold out show. They're coming back to do a 
what what you would say would be a gay retelling of Howard's End, which was <laughs> a, a, yes. a wonderful story. Uh, been rewritten and retold, but it's 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 a Tony and Olivia Award winning uh, best play. Um, been done at 45 Downstairs. People can look at it like binge watching theatre, I guess. It's done in two, three hour sessions. So it's for the real theatre aficionados who really want to delve, delve deep into a, a really beautiful story that's um, got a lot of interest and certainly overseas and really excited to have that story shown here. But uh, it's, 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 it's pretty wild. There's a, there's a lot going on and uh, we have a lot to deliver and we're really excited to do it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Esoteric as well as uh, just joy, really. There's a lot of joy. There's, there's always that stuff. There's the wonderful parties that happen. There's the after parties to shows. There's the saunas doing their parties. There's the, you know, Granny Bingo. There's a lot of comedy. There's a lot of joy. There's a lot of queer celebration in it as well. Yeah. Thanks very much for telling me about this. It's very exciting, really. Yeah, thanks. Listen, one other thing we're incredibly proud of as well, um, uh, Harriet Devlin, who's their artist development manager and was uh, one of the Rawkers, who's a disabled uh, artist with a disability performance group, works with us, has done now for the last two years. What we're doing in terms of increasing, not just to our own, you know, uh, the communities that everyone knows about, but certainly our deaf and hard of hearing communities and our blind and low vision communities incredibly proud of the work that we're doing and that we've done over the last 12 months with our disability action plan and our working groups to help us work out what sorts of shows we should support to get those communities to come and see and hear things as well. Um, we've, we've got something like um, 16 relaxed shows on, which are those people that might struggle a little bit with the bright lights and the really loud sounds. We've got over 30 events that are Auslan interpreted for our deaf and hard of hearing communities. Uh, 10 to 15 events that are audio described for our blind and low vision communities and um, a, a handful and a bunch of tactile tools that will take place yeah. across Victoria's Pride as well as the museum. So we just didn't want to make it easy for, for communities that find it easy to go to shows that we're doing incredibly hard and really important work to set up midsummer up for the future with those kinds of shows and that access that we're providing is something that we do inherently um, from the start of when we start pulling these shows together. So that's that's something really special I just wanted, wanted to mention. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's quite very exciting work for you really, isn't it? Because it's not just an everyday affair. No. No, it's... Um, we took the whole um, organisation on a, on a big learning curve uh, for that. We, we did a... developed a suite of training for... For our communities and you know such a beautiful side of the launch last tuesday to have our audio scribers in the crowd to have our auslan interpreters in the crowd so deaf and hard of hearing community could move amongst those that don't have uh any hearing problems and communicate with everyone in the audience it was it's it's it is a hard thing to do it can be a little bit tricky at the start making sure we get it right but you know what? The joy that comes from seeing all of our community members able to enter into those spaces and enjoy them like everyone else brings more than a tear to my eye for those that know me. You're with Annie on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, listening to the third in our summer season. We've been chatting with Brendan Cooney, Program Manager for Midsummer, about the events running from the 21st of January to the 11th of February, right across Melbourne and beyond. Check out their website for the events and any tickets. We have a right to be in public space. 
undertaking political activity. That is not something that people should be telling us that we can't do. Multiple actions rolling over months and years and create huge sustained pressure of social change. And what we're seeing around the country right now is increasing repression of protest. Protest works. That's why I think we're seeing it criminalised all over the place. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, listening to the third in our summer season. When Daniel Andrews left office, he kicked the door shut with one of the most outrageous announcements for a Labor Premier. The destruction of public housing with the toppling of 40 public housing towers with lands to be handed over to private developers and three times the density of private renters in the same space. That's the scenario, effectively. Maybe a SOP to affordable and social housing run by not-for-profit landlords who are accumulating massive property portfolios on the back of former public housing assets. Whatever the arguments put forward, I got a front-row seat to an explanation behind the neoliberal framework that is informing the public policy which is supposed to be dealing with the massive housing shortfall in this country. It is a short piece from the 2023 Economic and Social Outlook Conference held in June by the Melbourne Institute in partnership with the Australian from a session called Easing the Housing Supply Squeeze and Making Homes Affordable for All Australians. We are listening to Mr Nathan Delbon, Chief Executive Officer, Housing Australia. Thank you. Thanks very much for the opportunity uh, to talk to you today. Uh, so we uh, were formally known as NIFIC. We've been Housing Australia since the 12th of October. Uh, when we did receive royal assent, we actually had a bit of a nervous count uh, because essentially we were worried we were going to commence on Friday the 13th, but uh, luckily it turned out to be uh, the 12th of October. I think it's fair to say that um, there has been a sustained underinvestment, particularly in subsidised housing. And I think if, we, if we're looking at the problem definition in terms of what we're experiencing at the moment, certainly a lot of the problems that we're seeing um, with affordability, in particular rental affordability, relate to the fact that we have had a sustained underinvestment in subsidised housing over an extended period of time. And even the PC, um, he would you know, expect to be pretty dry on these things, have pointed to the fact that the underinvestment in public housing has led to people um, being forced into the private rental markets who don't have the ability to adjust their income because a lot of these people are on welfare, um, or essentially increasing numbers of people being homeless. Um, in terms of some of the interest, and probably my first point sort of reflects a little bit of the inherent cynicism, I guess, in terms of interest in affordability. I think that's part of the part of the uh, or being part of the past problem, is that you know the interest peaks, you know, depending on you know sometimes interest rate cycles. Um, when I think going forward, we do have to have a sustained interest in addressing those structural um, issues that have been driving um, deteriorating affordability over a long period of time. Um, and I've just put a chart up there because it, and a little bit self-serving because it does refer to some um, Melbourne Institute um, data, but it just also sort of zeroes in in terms of um, the extent of the problem that we're, that we're dealing with. So you can see the overall rental affordability over time has actually um, been pretty consistent. Um, you would expect that to have spiked in the last couple of years given what we've seen in terms of rental increases on average. Um, but when you, have, when you break it down and you have a look at some of the cohorts, and in particular over 65, when people talk about um, particularly over 55 single women, 
Um, that's where you're sort of seeing that particularly acute stress when it comes to rental affordability. And as I say, when we sort of move forward in terms of solutions and how we address that in a structural sense, this is some of the, the evidence and the hard data that we need in terms of moving forward. In terms of um, you know, what we do moving forward, and probably the title of this slide should be a leading role for government, but then also other stakeholders. Because I think if we're going to have a sustainable solution moving forward, we do need a whole range of, um, of stakeholders to provide the solution. So government, I think, still has an important role to play. Um, uh, importantly, I think it's a, a catalytic role, um, but I also see it as playing um, a direct role in terms of providing a lot of the services where we know that there's going to be no other form of assistance. Remote housing, for example, is a good example of where you're not going to expect, in many cases, the private sector to provide a response. Um, I think one of the key sort of messages, and I agree with, with Mike on this, is that we need to focus on supply going forward, whether that's supply for subsidised housing, supply more broadly. Um, we do have to plan uh, ahead and we have to plan for the sort of population growth that we expect. Um, clearly, um, there has been sort of limited success when it comes to um, supply um, and I think there's probably been a tendency um, in the past to resort to the quick fixes, the demand side sugar hit, which um, provides an immediate response but doesn't really address the long-term structural challenges. I think the, the, um, the role for catalyzing private investment is certainly an important one. Um, certainly when you have a look at the interest in um, the ESG agenda and certainly from our experience in terms of how we face or interface with institutional investors, the strong interest that we're seeing um, through our bond issuance program, and we just had a substantial bond issuance um, yesterday, is that there is incredibly strong demand from investors who want to have exposure to subsidised housing. The key, the key factor is obviously, does the rate of return, um, uh, essentially, is that high enough to attract that interest from institutional investment? So to, to sort of scale up, and in particular, my focus is, as Michael's saying, is um, trying to address that part of the affordability challenge that relates to subsidised housing. Um, the, the government have announced the, the HAF, the Accord, an additional billion for the NIF, the Social Housing Accelerator, um, and there has been a lot of um, uh, attention, uh, rightly so, focused on doing more for, for those people most in need. I think the, if I distill it down in terms of the half and the accord, um, in essence, what they're seeking to do is essentially close the funding gap that exists in terms of subsidised housing. In other words, um, the rents that you receive from subsidised housing are insufficient to cover the costs. Um, and so what, half and, uh, what the half and the accord are attempting to do to make, is to make those project, projects viable through an ongoing subsidy. The other thing I would say is that in, in, in our view, based on the extensive consultations that we've had, um, apart from there being a burning need, our sense is the timing's right in terms of the um, interest we've had from market participants. So in talking to developers, talking to builders, talking to financiers, there's certainly a window, um, uh, particularly over the next 12 months or so, with a softening forward pipeline um, to really drive home um, this new supply focused on social and affordable housing. In terms of where we're up to, 
the investment mandate for the half in the accord has been released last week for public consultation. That closes next Wednesday. Uh, you know, as soon as the government finalises the investment mandate, um, our hope is to move as quickly as possible in terms of opening uh, the first round, um, first funding round for the half in the accord. And our ambition is to get the new supply on the ground as quickly as possible. Obviously, if we are focusing on new, um, new builds, new construction, it will take uh, time. Um, accessibility to land um, is obviously critical. Um, getting the approvals process, all the things that, all the ingredients that uh, Mike has been also referring to, they're going to be critical in terms of the timing of this new supply. Um, so I think, you know, this conversation, this, this debate in terms of how we get new supply, but also um, would support what Adam has said just in terms of, you know, the increased focus, particularly on those people most in need, um, and the focus on subsidised housing. Supply more generally, I think, is important. Um, affordability is more important. But I think when we have a look at those people that are hurting the most, it's certainly the lowest income and the people most in need. Thank you. You're with Annie on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, listening to the third in our summer season. We've just been listening to Mr Nathan Dalbon, Chief Executive Officer, Housing Australia, explaining what the federal government thinks it is doing to make housing affordable and available in a housing crisis. Now, let's turn to a part of a chat I had with two long-term public housing tenants, Lynn and John, both have been active in fighting for a voice for public housing tenants. So um, can you give me some idea who you are, Lynn, and uh, your interest in public housing? Sure. I'm a public housing tenant. I have been for 23, four years. I first lived in Richmond High-Rise Estate. And how did you get to be a public housing tenant? I moved from Ballarat, yeah. where I was born and raised, and I decided to move. I had a small child and I was a single mother. And I applied and within two weeks I had a unit there. And it was beautiful. It was on the 10th floor. I had a million dollar view of the city. And I actually loved living there. It was a great community. I met lots of friends that I still have now. But in 2009, things got a bit not livable for us. Well, you used to work on resident problems, didn't you? You, you, you oh, were yes. a tenant so, organiser, really. I sort of managed the tenant group for a time. Got to know the department and the managers, who were all wonderful people, and we had a great community. The tenant group used to hold public meetings where we'd have over 100 residents turn up each time. They were very interested in what was happening on the, on the estate, and um, it was great. But I happened to move to Port Melbourne, but I've still kept in close contact with Richmond, people from Richmond. Now, what happened in uh, Richmond was that uh, you became too uh, hot to handle, wasn't it? I, it was a bit like that, yes, and I had my life threatened, so the department moved me okay, quite right. quickly, which was very kind of them. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's unusual because everything about your story is that you get moved quickly. Mm. Where did quickly go from the public housing? Um? Things have changed very much. I, <laughs> I don't understand, but I, I was put in, a, in an emergency accommodation for the weekend when the incident happened, all paid for by the government, which is very strange because nowadays I don't think they'd do it. Mm. Um, so what year would have that have been? That was 2009. Yeah, OK. And entering this conversation is John. So, John, what's your experience of public housing? Oh, gosh. Uh, OK. Um, never thought I'd be in it. Um, always thought it was a great idea. Uh, I'm my own property, car accident, TAC, 
business loss, couldn't work, house lost, you know, private rental again, um, and found myself without anywhere to live. So, bit, a bit of a shock. I, I never thought I'd be in that situation, but when you've been physically sort of damaged and you get to a certain age. So I found myself uh, at Park Towers, um, October 06. Right, okay. Now, so we're talking, uh, you know, things are going along, building along. Both of you have uh, found a sanctuary, effectively. Yeah, because uh, someone was telling me who had worked uh, in the uh, one of, in some of these uh, towers, uh, this announcement about getting rid of the towers was the question really was what what are they going to replace them with? But when I went to the um, meeting on uh, at down in Collingwood, people were saying that they actually liked their flats and they'd like to keep them. Mm, and I love if, my flat. Yeah, and mm. if there was going to be upgrades, that would be cheaper, and they wouldn't all be dislocated. And um, the green space would be preserved. But mm. the government's plans are quite clearly directed towards private developers. Oh, gosh, because they, re they really want to get rid of that s a certain class of people in the area. So, you know, social cleansing is a real thing. And uh, the so-called gentrification of, of inner city areas, well, it's already happened in Sydney. All the public housing uh, in Sydney... Uh, has gone, has been sold off. And, of course, they know that there are all those, those elderly people who have grown up there, whose families have grown up there. They're all traditional working-class areas. And, um, of course, they'll be thrown out in the outer suburbs and they'll just die quicker. Because if you just take people out of their environment where all their friends are and they're not, they die. That's what happens. Um, in our area, I, I'm afraid it's not just social cleansing, but it's also ethnic cleansing. Because... Um, my experience running uh, our organisation from the very beginning was that um, uh, local uh, Albert Park, South Melbourne, uh, Auskick, they did not want our kids to participate with their kids. Middle Park, uh, when there was Middle Park Primary and Port Melbourne Primary only, you could Google it and see where, where, you know, where you, your the child could are. go. And yeah. the boundaries went literally street the streets around our building and the streets around other public housing and Dorcas Street so those kids weren't allowed to go to Middle Park Primary. So where, where did they go? They all went to either Port Melbourne or there was a Catholic primary school which is growing now. That's sort of different to Richmond. The tenant group forged an alliance with the Richmond Football Club and the club came to the estate every week played with the kids for a couple of hours and built a really great rapport, and that ended up with the the football club providing buses, and the kids would go to the football every Saturday when Richmond were playing at home, which was wonderful. So, in in Richmond's case, I don't think it's ethnic cleansing. I wouldn't call it that, but I'm not saying it doesn't happen. Mm. But um, no, what totally you're saying different. is that it, there are social pressures that influence outcomes when it comes to political. Uh, power, I presume. I mean, you know, like uh, there must have been some influence there amongst oh, the power for parents and the political will around those 
Abso- uh, boundaries. Absolutely. I mean, it's a traditional working de- class yeah, area. And, that's uh, been thoroughly gentrified. Yeah. And I, I, you say gentrified, but these people really don't behave like gentry at all. There's no blesh, no blesh, no blige. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and also, too, we have a lot of black kids um, and uh, they come from Muslim families and they, uh, they're particularly unwanted. Um, uh, they've a uh, lot of uh, multi-bedroom properties have been sold off in the area, um, which would preclude black a lot of black families because they tend to have large families. And people say to me, "Oh, you know, gosh, you know, they, they, they have so many children." And I suggest it was like when I was a kid, Catholics had so many children, you know. Um, <laughs> so you know, oh, and also I, place that people with. Uh, under uh, siege generally feel that if they have I mean there's lots of studies about this you know when, if, you, if these people have come from war-torn countries exactly like in, in Richmond it had a large population of Vietnamese people when I lived there and they were petrified if police came by or the, you know they were scared of the department they were scared with whatever they said they'd get kicked out and that wasn't true at all. But there are many African families in Richmond, and and, yeah, and up here too. Yeah, and they're all welcomed very well. Mm. They're the best tenants, I'm afraid. I mean, I, I hate to. Be, it's almost being. Um, I'm not trying to be sort of like an inverted, you know, inverted racist, but. Uh, they really are. They don't smoke. They don't drink. They don't swear. The kids are beautifully turned out. Dads go to work. Dads pick their kids up from school. Um, I mean, they're always a, a joy, you know, to, to chat to. Um, mm. And um, uh, they're here f- for the circumstances of, as you said, war. Um, a lot of them are highly educated people who um, are driving taxis here. Uh, it was quite clear to me that uh, the government, and it's it's bipartisan, it's not just Labor, it's uh, the Liberals as well. Oh, yes. Uh, it, it, because it's been going on for so long. A lot of the public housing places were being, uh, even though there was a large, a, a lot of people on the list, and when you said when you needed it, uh, you immediately, you know, in two weeks you got a place when you were coming up from the country. Uh, but what they're doing is uh, not filling the empty flats. That's what I've been noticing. They weren't em- they weren't filling the empty flats. No, we they have, had a plan. We have loads of empty flats, yes, and they were so emptying the- them out because they were intending to have park towers demolished first. So that was going to be their sort of you know, you know, you know, big boom, level it, you know. Um, uh, but uh, they're repairing uh, all the leaks now. The leaks that have been going on for seven years because of the upgrade 12 years ago were so shoddy um, that we had sewage leaks and water leaks and black mould and uh, that was attracting rats and uh, it, it, they just uh, uh, didn't care. And now they're actually fixing it, you know, and putting in new bathrooms. Um, so uh, yeah, the, the bottom line is you... you, you, you You've got a housing. There's a housing crisis, and so what are you going to? Where are you going to put the people in the meantime? The the public house, public housing um, uh, or Department of Housing or whatever you want to call it now, Homes Vic, uh, has been in the private housing market for well well over ten years. Yeah. They rent private properties oh. of private oh. landlords on a two year lease arrangement where yes. they do. 
they renovate them, they'll put in disabled bathrooms, they'll um, do all the repairs through the department, uh, and they, they, of course, they just pay. And this is all the money rent. to a private, a private uh, uh, landlord. landlord. And they love it. Of they course they it. love it. They love it. And um, because everything is taken care of. Um, and, All uh, public money. Yes. yes. And also it, it means you've got this gorilla in the market called, you know, Housing Victoria or Homes Victoria who is pushing up private rents even more because they've been selling off uh, public housing left, right and centre under uh, both governments. Uh, both governments have used, since Kennett, have used the uh, public housing as a money box. It's somewhere you go to when you need money and you can rip out giant, great amounts of money. You can, you can By always, selling off properties. Oh, you can sell off single properties or, or I say, a flat in a block or a house in a street, you know, and no one knows. Selling off total lots of flats is much harder and more public. But yes, of course. I mean, look, uh, Brax did it in 07 with the Commonwealth Games. He, he ripped every cent out of the public housing department and some out of DHHS. So they had no budget. They had no budget for repairs. They, had, they didn't have any money so for So we could anything. have a sports event. So we could <laughs> have a sports event. I just want to speak on that. In, in around 2001, I was a member of the VPTA, the Victorian Public Tenants Association, and they were talking about the idea of social housing. And a group that I was in then were a bit wary of this. And it's it's come true. It's come to fruition now because they've the government stopped the money pile for public housing. They didn't repair anything. They've let it run down to shocking standards. Correct. But they've given money to social housing that was meant to fund itself, you know, regenerate its own income. But for 23 years, they've given money to housing associations, and I think it's wrong because many of them example housing choices. If you look them up, they've got billions of dollars worth of assets. So who's making the money? Mm. And that should have been public housing money mm. that went to those housing associations. And then by then, them being the landlord, they can charge 30% of the income. They can keep your rent assistance. It's just all wrong, and and it's unaffordable. It's mm. not like public housing, and I just it's want also to... it's unstoppable because the roof <laughs> in ridiculous. terms of the cost. Mm. I'm I'm actually gobsmacked by the thought of forty four towers, and what do they mean by towers? To me, a tower is a twenty story building, so we have to define where's the forty four. There aren't 44 huge towers. Do they mean walk-up estates? What do they mean? And where is this 10,000 people going to be dispersed? Is it 10,000? No one comes up with an exact figure. I think it's important that the community and the public know that it's, I think it's far more than 10,000 people. There's 4,000 alone at Richmond. Down in Collingwood, they were talking about them getting rid of 10,000 people uh, and putting 30,000 people on the existing place. Ten years ago, a walk-up estate on Elizabeth Street, Richmond, was demolished. Now, those people were dispersed, rehoused, told that they'd be able to come back and, you know, you'll be back in your community. That was in about 2007, eight. In 2010, Richard Wynne stood on the block and said, we're going to build these fancy, beautiful... Um, apartments. It's on YouTube if anyone wants to look, just look up Richard Wynne. Uh, that 
land has sat vacant until this year. So he announced it in 2010. So why wasn't it built? Those people will never, ever return to their community. Because it's 10 years. Martin Foley did the same thing in Glen Iris, um, promised the whole community, mainly elderly people, that they would be returning. They'd levelled the entire uh, estate and they built it completely. uh, It went to private developers. Those people never went back. He lied to them. And I know someone. They lie all the time. Yeah. Well, (laughs) it's a a toxic, dishonest, deceitful, Mm. and uh, often corrupt. Uh, department. I mean, health has been scream, you know, scratching and screaming to get out of DHHS. Then they changed the name after that, after surrounding buildings and imprisoning people. You know, um, uh, the Department of Family Fairness and Housing, which is it's it's so Orwellian. I mean, I mean, Orwell would just be chuckling. I mean, I, I don't know if someone did it on purpose. Um, and they didn't. They, they they may as well call it Department of Family Fairness, Plenty, Love and Housing. Yeah, uh, but it's a bit like um, it, it, they don't care about no fa- families. There's no, there's fairness, no fairness in it at all. No. Yeah, yeah, but also um, HR. It, it, they don't call it that anymore. They call it um, uh, something other in culture. You know, like in corporations. Well, they used to call us residents, and they called us tenants. Now they call us renters. But in within the department, the walls of the department, they call us end users, which is rather like someone. You know, I, I think of an end user as someone who uses a public lavatory. You know, um, and so the disdain. I mean, you know, everything would work so well if, as long as they didn't have tenants, and they can't have tenants like linen and me, um, who are, you know, we're uppity, you know. I mean, God forbid. but we speak up. (laughs) Well, you know, as as far as they're concerned, uh, you know, I mean, uh, when those, uh, you know, $9 million was uh, committed to the Richmond and and somebody was meant to be brought in and create, you know, community and increase capacity. Now, we were doing so well on our own, but, you see, the department can't have a volunteer organisation <laughs> Um, getting its own grants, doing its own events, applying for its own equipment. They don't want that. They want people with their hands out. So no self-empowerment. They've taken the power right away from public tenants, so they don't have a voice. So they're not told anything. They're just mushrooms. Mm. And um, if you want to get funding – well, I applied for funding because I'm helping the group at Richmond. I'm a member, but I'm helping them grow the tenant – organisation again, but I was told by the department that funding's not available because of COVID. So we weren't allowed to apply for funding. So we've kept running, but no money or anything, not that so we need they, Well, we had funding So with COVID, 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 you could have actually improved people's internet access of and, course, and had of Zoom uh, parties or yeah, something. There would have, but can I just say something? I know we're getting to the end. I think the department should... Stop with the social, affordable, bulldust names for housing. It's either public or it's not. Public or private. I would agree whatever. with that. It's, it's too confusing. Affordable housing means what? Well, affordable actually, to who? Hmm. And what, you know, I could be earning 100000 a year and pay rent accordingly, and that's affordable for me, but it might not. You know, it's, it doesn't make sense to me. You're with Annie on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast, listening to the third in our summer season. We've come to the end of the show. 
We continued our coverage of the response to the genocide against the Palestinian people. Hope to see you at the next week's State Library Steps Rally. We heard about the upcoming events at this year's Midsummer Festival starting 21st of January to the 11th of February. Go to their website for program details and tickets. We finished with the beginning of our two-week coverage of public housing. Next week, we will have a Techno Park update and a report from the Fitzroy Public Housing Gathering, which marks the building of strength to bring the government to its knees over the retention of our beautiful public housing sector. Until next week, keep safe and have a happy new year. I don't want you at home anymore I want to go to work so I don't have to be poor I want to gig with my band on the Portland shore listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.